Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. I'm Josh Summers, your host, and I'm delighted to have you here. This podcast, as I try to say, tries to attempts to explore a full-spectrum spirituality. And in today's talk, I, I share with you a Dharma talk I gave last week where I reflect on an interview that I received uh, through correspondence. So a member of the online sangha that Terry and I run sent me an interview from the magazine The Sun, and this interview focused uh, uh, on the work of a Christian theologian scholar named Douglas Christie. Uh, he teaches at Loyola Marymount University in L.A., and um, his work has really focused on the early Christian monasticism found in Egypt, whereby uh, contemplatives went to the desert to uh, explore themselves, their relationship to the world, and their spirituality. And there's a lot from the desert monastic tradition that I think can inform, um, as I try to get into in the talk, I think there's a lot from the desert monastic tradition that can inform our contemporary uh, pro approach to contemplative practice. So um, I hope you enjoy today's talk. And before I give it to you, I just want to say that um, if you enjoy these themes, particularly this theme of deep listening, um, I invite you to join me and Terry in our online sangha called the Riverbird Sangha, where we combine the practices of yin yoga, qigong, contemplative meditation as a way to support the apprehension and realization of the sublime in everyday life. Um, and upcoming on February 26th, Terry and I will be leading a day-long retreat or a day-long of practice combining yin yoga, qigong, and contemplative meditation. So we invite you to join us for that retreat if you like, or just consider joining us to practice regularly throughout your week with us online. We run four classes a week of meditation, Qigong and Yin Yoga, and all our classes are live over Zoom. But if you become a member to our, our Sangha, you will get access to our library, our membership library that includes all our classes in replay format, um, all our workshops, which really go into the nuts and bolts and deeper aspects of Yin Yoga, Qigong, and meditation. And uh, as well as you'll have access to our tutorials, sequences, so you, you really learn how to do these practices um, regardless of where you're starting. So we, we try to have um, tutorials in our, in our library for all levels um, so that when you join, you're able to both understand the core practices and then start to see how they fit together and practice with us throughout the week to really integrate. That's the key word we're, 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 we're using, to really integrate um, how these practices come together and support, as I keep saying, the apprehension of everyday sublime. So do check out the Riverbird Sangha. There's a link for you in the show notes. And memberships, uh, a monthly membership starts at as, as little as $5 a month. So just about a a cup of an expensive latte uh, gets you access to our teaching, our classes, workshops, tutorials, and even the retreat recordings uh, also uh, get stored in the library. In this spring, I should just also add uh, from March 1st through, through May 31st, 
we're running a special online yin yoga and traditional Chinese medicine training. So this is for teachers and this is for students, serious students I should say, who are really interested in understanding the functional aspects of Chinese medicine and how yin yoga collaborates with those functional aspects to harmonize our qi within. And my basic premise here, which comes out in this today's talk, is that by deeply harmonizing and understanding our nature within, we have a uh, an intuitive understanding for how to engage and start to heal and harmonize the world without. So that's this is a theme that shows up in Taoism. This is a theme that shows up in really uh, a variety of different contemplative traditions. But we need to deeply understand ourselves first, harmonizing our energy, cultivating the capacities of the heart for love and compassion. And from that internal understanding, we then have a chance of bringing and manifesting that in the world around us. Okay, so without further ado, I now bring you today's talk focusing on a particular saint in the desert forest tradition named Saint Anthony. And for reference, I include the interview that I reflect on in the show notes. That's called The Desert Within with Douglas Christie. Okay, now without further ado, I give you Saint Anthony's Valentine. And just as we start off, uh, before I give my <coughs> reflections, there it goes, I'm going to send you all a link to a interview that one of you sent to me over the week. So this is an interview that appeared in the Sun magazine, the literary magazine, and it's with a theo uh, professor of theology, uh, particularly Christian theology, uh, from Loyola Marymount University in L.A. Um, and his this particular professor's name is Douglas Christie, so I'll refer to him as Christie. And um, he speaks in this interview about his expert area, area of expertise, which is early Christian monastics in Egypt in the third and fourth century um, A.D., these monastics who lived in the Egyptian desert. Um, and I was very moved by the interview. I thought there was a tremendous amount of resonance between the way um, I have experienced and, and worked with the contemplative path. And um, I hope in sharing that interview and then reflecting on bits of it here um, that you might see some resonance yourself in the, in the kind of practice and the approach to practice that we're, we're working with together. Um, but particularly, I, I wanted to draw on this in particular article or interview because I, give, I think it gives a slightly different flavor to uh, what I have been referring to lightly as the mystical heart. And, and the mystical heart or the heart of mysticism is something that's very difficult to articulate. In fact, all language will fail uh, inevitably. Um, but that the, the failure of language does not invalidate the, the conviction that comes with, with direct experience when we experience it ourselves. And really, that's what I, one way of looking at it is that's what Terry and I are very much um, kind of aiming to support with our mission here in the Sangha, to support you with practices so that you find your way within your practice to come to a, a deep, a very profound, deep connection with your own heart. So uh, the first thing I wanted to 
uh, pick on or pick from in this interview is the, the sort of the, the the social context within which this flavor and brand of monasticism took root in the desert. Um, as the scholar says, he says, the Roman Empire at this time exercised a crushing force up and down the entire Nile River, often reducing its subjects to chattel. And it's one thing, he says, to say that the monks wanted to live lives of spiritual authenticity, that, they, that the monks and nuns who went to the desert, they were looking for spiritual authenticity. That's true, he says, but it's also important to recognize that withdrawing to the desert was a concrete survival strategy to physically remove oneself from the reach of empire and reconfigure one's daily existence out on the edges. Now, I, I'm going to pause there for a second. Um, I don't, we don't necessarily consider ourselves living on the edges of empire, uh, necessarily. Uh, but there is a way that I think um, for many folks, and I'm, I'm not saying this is your experience per se, but I think many folks come to spirituality because of a, a kind of dryness or, or aridity, like desert-like feeling that uh, the culture we're in seems to be providing. And for me, that was a kind of waking up to a, a tremendous amount of materialism in my culture that um, felt spiritually barren to me completely barren. I, I didn't know how to engage with it. I didn't know how to participate in it. I didn't want to participate in it. And that uh, sense of being, um, not wanting to be of the, of the prevailing culture sent me on a kind of spiritual search. And that's just sort of how my path took off, took off. But I just invite you to reflect on the sense of maybe dissatisfaction, disconnection, um, not wanting to be part of a prevailing societal or cultural trend and how the heart of your spirituality comes forward, looking, searching, maybe stretching for something with greater depth, meaning, sustenance, and value. The scholar says, uh, uh, Douglas Christie is his name. He says, the desire to form community and to live without succumbing to social, political, and economic forces that threaten to undo us, isn't that a vision that still motivates many of us? So the desire to conform, I should say, the desire to form community, to sort of come together with each other and live without succumbing to the social, political, and economic forces that threatened to undo us. These were the forces that motivated these deserts, desert fathers and mothers that went to the, the desert. But I would say, and, and this is my hunch, that, that, that many of us can share a sense of this, that we wanna live in a way that doesn't have us succumbing to social, political, economic forces that are harmful, oppressive, um, and not in line with a sense of what our hearts tell us. <clears throat> and the, I, I really do encourage you to read this, this uh, uh, interview. Um, one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading it was that I think all spiritual practice, 
um, regardless of your geographical location. But I think all spiritual practice moves one into a kind of desert. And the desert mothers and fathers speak about their time, their experience in living in very stark conditions in the desert. But I think uh, metaphorically, any practice worth its salt moves us into a kind of desert. And, and on one level, the way I think about that is that practice itself is a practice of simplicity. There's a kind of uh, very clean or clear simplicity to a contemplative practice. Whether some of you might have a, a practice where you sit for five or 10 minutes or 15 minutes a day. So your simplicity, your container of simplicity might be kind of contained within that period of time. But others of you might uh, say, come on a day-long retreat. So that, that container of simplicity might be stretched for a full day. Some of you I know have gone on retreats like I have. And, and in those retreat experiences, that commitment to simplicity is sustained and stretched out. And then there are people that kind of make this their life, um, whether they're monastics or, or people in, in lay life who voluntarily commit to a kind of simplicity as a way to come to a deeper understanding of life and a deeper connection and um, integration with life. And one of the reasons why I say that this, this, this kind of simplicity in spiritual practice is like a desert is that within the mirror of the simplicity, I often say this about meditation, you know, when we, when we just sit with ourselves and don't feed the distractions, we don't feed the impulses to do anything, but just to sit and watch and observe, essentially, or listen. Um, in that listening, we, we will listen through layer upon layer of ourself. And often, a lot of the layers that we open to include layers of pain or unresolved wounds. Um, and this was certainly the case for one of the most famous desert monastics that is mentioned in this interview. Um, this particular monastic's name was St. Anthony. So the, the, the loose working title of this talk is St. Anthony's Valentine. Uh, but St. Anthony, it said, this the common story about him was that he lived an ordinary life in the Nile River Valley. But when his parents died, leaving him and his younger sister orphaned, um, he was kind of at a crossroads of what to do. They, they did leave him an inheritance. But one day he walked into a church and heard a reading from scripture about Jesus, telling a rich young man, quote, if you want to be perfect, go and sell everything you have and give the money you have to the poor. Then come follow me. So the, the, the preacher was quoting Matthew, the book of Matthew. What's interesting here, <clears throat> says uh, Christy, is that Anthony, St. Anthony took this to mean that he needed to go to the desert to seek purification and transformation in solitude and silence. But it, takes some time for, it took some time for him to get there. First, he goes to a corner of his home garden 
Then he goes to the edge of his village. Then he takes up residence in an abandoned old fort, then in some tombs. And in the tombs, when he was living in a tomb, he experienced a sustained assault by demons so fierce and violent that he is brought almost to the end of his life. And it's, the, and it's that, that aspect of his experience that I want to kind of tease out right now. This assault of demons and for, inner forces. The interviewee says, the ancient world, in, in the ancient world, demons were thought to be real presences. But I think, he says, even then, they were also understood as profound psychological or spiritual forces manifestations of wounds that are unhealed. And I think this is, this was definitely has been and continues to be true for me in that when I am able to practice, whether it's for a half hour or, um, you know, have a longer period of practice formal practice for a day or several days on a retreat at some point, not every day, but at some point within the sort of the routinized container of stillness that the practice creates through listening, I start to encounter um, the inner demons, the, the parts of myself that have not become fully healed yet, or that are still open in, in wound. And this is in some ways. Um, I think often greeted by myself and by people I know that experience these, these kind of challenges, it's often greeted as a uh, kind of a problem to get past or seen as, as something that it's um, there's an obstruction in the practice to getting to something better or to a better state. <clears throat> but I've been thinking about this quite a bit more lately and it really, if I, if, I, if I think through the way the Buddha himself formulated his teaching, primarily around a, a kind of medicine for the heart, the Buddha was seen as a physician who could help heal the human heart um, and, and transform the heart into a, into a heart of love and compassion. Um, but in the first phases of, of his teaching, uh, he spends a lot of time speaking about the pain of existence, the dukkha. And I think I've said this maybe sometime last year, but it, it really has occurred to me that the first phase of waking up, we start to become more awake and alive to our full self, if you will. Oftentimes, part of what we start to wake up to are these unhealed wounds, these unhealed um, aspects of our psyche and heart. And every time I feel like I've opened up and, and become more conscious to one of these wounds, there's a very curious aspect to it where it's something that is just sort of come out of the background of my consciousness is now is fully recognized and known. In other words, it was there all along. It was something that was not quite right, not, not feeling quite right, a tone in me that wasn't quite right. It was something there that, that was there all along that I simply could not see. And 
in a way, um, I think the process of awakening continues on like that, that we start to wake up to become more conscious to things that were always there that we just weren't capable of seeing in a kind of contracted or wounded or um, compromised state. And there's a phrase that an old friend of mine, my friend Michael Brooks, who passed away a couple, uh, just a year and a half ago, um, but Michael used this phrase a lot, the elusive obvious. He was borrowing it from the body worker Feldenkrais. But the elusive obvious, something that's obvious that eludes us. And I found that, you know, a big part of my practice at, you know, at, at times, and then it definitely continues on, is waking up to things that are obvious to maybe others, <laughs> wake up to them in myself and, oh, wow, that's, I, I'm like that. That's it. That's really, or I never noticed that there was that, that thing about me or that this pain in my jaw was connected to something like this, but something that, that is um, kind of, it eludes your conscious attention finally comes forward in this scene. And I say this keeps going on through the path as I see it, um, because when we wake up first through these layers of, of wounding, but when we open to those, we transform the wounds, we kind of unbind the, the energy that gets bound in the wound is now transformed and is freed in a way to engage um, and to be channeled into uh, a direction of love and compassion. You know, this is the way I see it. There's, there, there, there's a, a sense of aliveness and compassion that comes from, from transforming uh, these, these inner wounds. <clears throat> And um, this character of St. Anthony, you know, as Christy explains, seems to be a very real human expression of these challenges that, that face the psyche or that we, that we face when we attempt to wake up. He says, the story of Anthony becomes the story of a willing confrontation. And this is, a, I think, a beautiful description of practice. Um, in a way, this Anthony's story becomes one of a willing confrontation with these forces and a struggle to subdue them or transform them. This is what the paintings depict. Not the holy, serene monk, you know, not the serene Buddha, not the, the aloof monk that looks all transcendent and, and above it all but rather St. Anthony, the monk getting his ass kicked in the desert, scraping by with a, with a tomb for a house, nothing between himself and the world, everything stripped away. He later says, Anthony embodies the aspect of this reality we're so often embedded in, which is, the aspect of reality we're so often embedded in, the suffering and struggle and unknowing that overtake us and leave us feeling helpless and bewildered. Anthony seems to embody this aspect of reality we're so often embedded in, the suffering and struggle and unknowing that overtake us and leave us feeling helpless and bewildered that he somehow survives this crucible 
and emerges as a figure of compassion and tenderness, as a guide for others moving through the abyss, means so much. <clears throat> so there's something about Anthony's experience in the desert of opening to the demons within his heart, giving them space, attention, presence of stillness and silence. There's something about that container of practice that transforms his heart into tenderness and compassion. And this is something that um, I'll be trying to explore mo more explicitly going forward. But when I read that, when I, when I listened to the story about St. Anthony, his demons and the kind of art that it inspired and later painters um, and what it produced in him, how it was ultimately transformed into, into a heart of compassion and tenderness. Um, I was reminded of a, a similar passage from my own, the tradition I would say is more the one I'm more familiar with the Thai forest tradition. So the, the, particularly the teacher of Ajahn Chah. Um, this is the, 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 the kind of strict, stark monastic tradition in, in Northeast Thailand that has branch monasteries throughout, uh, throughout the world. There's, there's one actually in New Hampshire now. There's one in a couple in England. And many of the, the senior teachers and monk, of monks and nuns are, are people that I feel like I've really benefited from practicing and studying with. Um, but there was a, 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 um, a student who came to stay with Ajahn Chah in Northeast Thailand and practiced with him for a while. And they said, you know, Ajahn Chah, you are so incredibly wise. Your understanding is so all-encompassing. All you seem to have answers to everything. You must have spent years studying the sacred scriptures, the Tipitaka, the, tipit, I can never say this word, the tipit, Tipitaka. The Tipitaka, that's a basket of early suttas or, or, or discourses of the Buddha, including the Abhidhamma, the book on, on Buddhist psychology. So the student is just sort of showering Ajahn Chah here with compliments about how wise and knowledgeable and learned he is and how he must have spent years and years and years studying the scriptures to gain such, such profound wisdom. This is the setup. <laughs> the student says, Yo, you, you're so learned, you're so wise. And Ajahn Chah replies, well, the only reason I have any wisdom, the only reason I have any wisdom is because I have had enormous defilements. Now, defilements is the early Buddhist word for demons, <laughs> desires and, and thoughts that plague our mind with anger, hatred, greed, selfishness, lust, all sorts of things. So he says, I've had enormous defilements. That's the real cause of my wisdom. It's because in the past, he says, in the past, I have experienced voluminous lust, ferocious anger, incredible restlessness, and have been plagued with numerous doubts. He described how it was through having to deal with those difficulties that he developed whatever wisdom he had, as well as any understanding and empathy for other people's problems. 
Now, understanding and empathy are words that um, I, I try to think think about a little bit more closely and carefully now. Um, we've been starting this our year together with the, the practice of listening. And I've hinted at it a few times that we're going to move from a, the, a base of listening to developing other capacities of the heart, which I'll refer to as cognitive empathy and compassion. So the understanding through a deep listening within and understanding our own wounds and starting to heal our own wounds through attention and space and silence allows us to understand firsthand within ourselves first, how causes and conditions shape those experiences. And you get a very direct, intuitive sense of that with time. When you understand that your anger, your, your strong desire, your, your hankerings, the things that hang you up, the things that trip you up are caused by kind of habit energies of fixation within your heart. When you start to see that, you start to understand that that's also the dynamic in everybody else. Not, I'm not saying everybody has the same particular experiences. There's a spectrum of experience. There's, there's brutal experiences in the world, but the, the, the trauma in the heart, you want to call it that, is healed within the same process. So it's like a medicine, this, this, the contemplative path offers a kind of medicine to, in a sense, cure the heart of these wounds, to heal the heart of its wounds. <clears throat> now, what I like about the Egyptian Christian monastic stories that come up in this interview and uh, the, the resonance I, I think and see with them um, uh, connecting to the, the Thai forest tradition that I practiced in is that both traditions place a huge emphasis on listening. Like listening is, in a sense, the core practice. I just want to give you a sense of that from, from the interview, where Christy says, more than anything, there is a value placed on listening as closely as possible to the mysterious silence that supports existence which is both the actual silence of the desert landscape and the silence of the self in contemplation. They listen to the silence with hopes of transforming their identities and reimagining community. Now, there's a lot there, but essentially what this teaching on listening is pointing to is that after we've learned to listen through the layers of our thinking mind, after we've learned to listen through the layers of our kind of subtle energetic feeling body, the, the feelings of emotions, after we've learned to listen through all those layers of our being, we start the listening pushes through or pushes back, leans back, if you will, into the source of listening itself. And this is a very essential piece of mysticism is that the awareness, whether I'm calling it listening now, the, li the listening 
leans back into itself to come to its own source, the source of listening, the silent source within us that's always already here, listening openly and equally to all experience we've ever had. Or as the contemporary composer who's no longer with us, John Cage, used to say, silence, if you let it, supports itself. Silence, if you let it, supports itself. Each something is a celebrating of the nothing beneath it. In your own experience, each something you experience is a celebration of the silence beneath it. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second and interject. If you're listening to me now, and you're hearing me talk about listening to the source of listening, to the, the, the radical stillness that's always already within you, and you're thinking, hmm, this sounds like, this sounds like, like some BS. <laughs> Or what my dad used to call 100% grade A pasture raised and pasture finished horseshit. If this mystical language sounds like that, I want you to know I understand. I've had tremendous doubts, confusions, struggles, arguments with teachings that don't I don't have a direct connection with yet. And what something that one of my teachers used to say, whenever I get frustrated and filled with doubt, he said, Oh, well, it's good that you have great doubt. And I said, why is that? He said, well, in Zen, they say little doubt, you get little enlightenment with great doubt comes great enlightenment. And I was thinking about this, that, that phrase this afternoon, um, And I think it speaks to the fact that to really become awake or to to participate in the process of awakening requires a, a willingness to confront not just our demons, but to question every assumption we have about life. To be willing to interrogate and question everything down to what is a self. What is the nature of self? Where is the boundary between my consciousness, the world, and a sense of self within that? To really take a firsthand close look at questions like that. And as Christy says, when the desert fathers and mothers went to the desert for practice, it wasn't so easy. It's what you see time and again in their characterizations of their practice. It wasn't so easy. It says anybody who tries entering into a space of silence, anybody who tries entering a space of silence can testify that when you begin, you soon find you're out of your depth. You're wanting things to happen and quickly. The silence is all around you, yet you can't seem to get into it because your internal noise is locking you out. You're unaccustomed to silence, and that's uncomfortable. The only thing to do, he says, is to stay with it 
be gentle with yourself and return the next day and the next. <clears throat> As I read that, you know, when I first went through the interview, um, it occurred to me that in my own practice time, in the moments when I have felt that I have come to rest within that silence, where there's the, the falling away of Josh, Josh's mind thinking, creating a barrier between the silence of listening and the world that's being heard, the world of experience that's being heard. That the only way to get there is for the listener, the part of us that's trying to listen. The listener has to, in a way, surrender into the listening. Has to release the control of trying to be a good listener or to get it right, or who self-flagellates, I'm not listening well enough. The part of us that's the listener, the doer, needs to surrender into the listening itself. And when that happens, it's obvious that that's the only way it happens. It's the elusive obvious that you couldn't see because there's so much kind of striving and trying and thinking and planning and comparing and judging and arguing internally that that surrender is obstructed in a way. And I'm trying to describe it a little bit because it, it, it really has a sense of a a release of control into something much bigger that suddenly rises up and holds you. And long before I, I came to formal meditation, this came to me during meditation years into it, uh, but the, the early experience of surrender came to me, not so much on the meditation cushion, but one summer, when I was doing landscaping, I was landscaping south of Boston for work. And at the end of the day, I would go to the beach in Marshfield or Situate Beach called Hummer Rock near where I lived. And I would go swimming just to sort of wash off the day, um, to try to wash off the poison ivy oil that was got on my skin and caused a lot of itching. But I would I'd try to swim. And while I would swim, I tried to practice floating. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, I, this opportunity to sort of wade out into the ocean or get up far enough in the ocean and then lie on your back, just fall back and let go completely and let yourself float. And the, there's a parallel here to the process of listening. So as I said, to really listen, the listener has to let go and fall, in a sense, into the listening itself. And the parallel here is that when I would go out and try to try to float, Josh, the floater, was trying to float, you know, there was a, a, a subtle or not so subtle 
energy in me that would contract and and move my, like push my, move my arms around flail a little little bit you know my, my legs would go down like i couldn't keep the keep my my body even and relaxed there was a way that when i was trying to do it i was always gunking it up and i was starting to sink a little bit i'd have to work to keep myself upright but in the letting go of that and learning to trust that and it took me a summer going out every day kind of like the way uh, christy described the the um, desert monks and nuns would go practice silence every day, but going to the ocean every day, lying back and getting more familiar with the experience of just letting go and feeling as I let go that the water held me up, that I could do nothing. And, and to do anything would, would be take me out of the floating experience, that to become floating to really float, the floater, me, the, the guy trying to float, needed to relax and surrender. So this is, I, I don't know if that, that, that analogy of, of floating in, in salt water and the ocean, if you've had that experience, you, know, you can maybe tap into that idea, but that's kind of the energy that I would encourage us tonight to bring to our listening. And I would say that to connect this both, the, the, these reflections to the, the art practice that I've been suggesting for the last few weeks. The idea in that practice is that by listening to a piece of art or reading a piece of art or viewing a piece of art that evokes the sacred in you, this brings you to the door of your own heart. This like starts to open up your own heart in a deeper, more comprehensive way and it stirs you it will stir um not just pleasant things it can stir on painful things that may be unresolved for you but it opens up the heart to to its own feeling dimension and from there the art the thought that occurred to me yesterday is that the art itself is a proxy for your true self for your mystical union it starts to open the door. It maybe reminds you of aspects of your, your heart's longing. It gives, give, may give you a few directional pointers on, on where to start looking and listening more closely. But ultimately, the art itself, the way at least the way I'm using it, starts to become your own being. The, the contemplative practice we're engaged with is one of not listening to an externally created piece of art, but we're listening deeply to our own self. And in the Christian sense, this is the Christian mystical sense, this deep listening, this is the final passage I'm going to quote, brings the, myst the mystical, he says, the mystical points towards a collapsing of boundaries that are elsewhere taken to be hard and fast. Most significantly, the boundaries of one's own identity. So when we listen deeply enough, he says the boundaries start to collapse between self and not self. That can sound threatening. The idea of boundaries collapsing. 
And I know why that language gets used sometimes. And I think it, it's accurate, but it's not necessarily the best language for, for, for some people to hear. Um, the way I might qualify it is, is that the boundaries between of, of, of me versus not me, those boundaries remain, but they're seen through. They become transparent. So to, you still see the line, proverbial line. There's still a sense of a body and skin here and a body and skin out there. That, 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 that knowledge of, of otherness is there. But the, um, the, boundary between, the boundary between those entities is seen through. There's a, there's, a, there's a direct sense of the awareness within is shining out through the awareness that you're looking at or the eyes looking at you with awareness. <clears throat> and the reason why this, I think this mystical experience is important. The one, the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm starting to reflect on it a little bit more, at least in the Christian sense, and I think this is true in the Buddhist sense too. In fact, I think this is true in every world religion, Judaism, Islam, Taoism, Confucianism, and yoga, that in the mystical expansion, there's often an experience of greater love. The boundaries of the ego dissolve, i.e. become transparent, and you're able to give and receive love infinitely. Now, just to be clear that I, you know, I still put my pants on one leg at a time, and I am not living from this depth of realization with any great regularity. <laughs> Maybe the best way I can say it. I've had, I feel like through practice, I've had glimmers of it. And the glimmers of it are enough to, to, to ignite my practice to keep going because I know this is the direction my heart wants to move. But I'm, I'm aware in the, in, the, in the kind of the conversations and the reflections and the sharing that come over email through conversations with you that many of you are experiencing this, this softening of a boundary. You're starting to feel this dissolving of a boundary and you're starting to sense a, a more kind of saner, calm stillness within ordinary stimulus, stimulus. Like it could be the, the rattle of your radiator. It could be your dog barking at the, at the squirrel outside. It could be a car, uh, a telephone ringing in your meditations. People are describing that <clears throat> there is this shift in perception where the thing that the, the stimulus that once agitated in a way and caused, you know, some irritation or rattle that stimulus is still there, but there's something that it, there's a position or place from within that it's being known from that is not agitated. And this is why, um, coming back to the idea of waves and floating, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, who passed away recently, Thich Nhat Hanh speaks to awakening in a very tangible way using the analogy of water and he just simply says the wave 
That's the wave stands for our sense of individuality, our uniqueness, our difference. The wave wakes up to its water nature. And the, the water nature does not change the individual experience of a wave, but it opens it up to a much deeper context of interconnection. And it's from that, that direct knowing of interconnection that becomes, I think, a basis for love, compassion, cognitive empathy, and real care. So I'll close here with the final words from Douglas Christie, the, the scholar. He says, it takes courage, takes courage opening yourself to love and to be loved by others. He sees the desert, the Egyptian desert where these monastics went, or the metaphorical desert that we enter in the simplicity of our practice. The desert as a school of love. Return to yourself and recover your capacity for love. That's the path. Okay, I hope you enjoyed those reflections on the interview about the desert fathers and mothers and how a sense of deep listening can really open up or open us deeply into our our deepest essence. And from there, uh, may we all discover a, a love unbound, a love that's capable of holding infinitely wide. So before you go, I just want to invite you one more time to practice with me and Terry, either on February 26th, that's a Saturday, for a full day of practicing yin yoga, qigong, and meditation in a kind of a retreat-like format um, where the consistency, the continuity of the practice really will help deepen your appreciation and experience of how far listening can take you. So there's a link for you in the show notes for, on that retreat. And also uh, we have our traditional Chinese medicine and yin yoga training this spring from March through end of May. Check that out if you're interested. Um, and do consider joining the Sangha. Practice with us weekly and you'll, we, we're confident you'll start to feel a deeper, um, more enduring transformation and presence of your practice in your life. So thanks so much for listening today. I look forward to seeing you soon. Take good care, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I'll see you soon. Thank you.